0: Hiya. Welcome to another episode, a bonus episode, of uh, Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment, and carbon zero goals. This is a weird episode because it's not strictly a Zero Ambitions episode, Uh, but we thought our listeners would be interested in it nonetheless. So, it's an interview with Hollywood actor Ed Begley Jr. Now, most recently, he was in, uh, he was part of the recurring cast of Better Call Soul, the Breaking Bad spin off. He's got, he used to be in St. Elsewhere way back when. He's been in Colombo twice. He was in An Officer and a Gentleman. He was in This Is Spinal Tap, uh, A Mighty Wind. And he was in Batman Forever. Um, anyway, Jeff made contact with Ed because he'd heard that Ed had built himself a, a platinum lead house out in LA somewhere, and he wanted to talk to him about it. So there's a whole story about if Jeff contrived to get in touch with him through the the celebrity messaging app Cameo. Um, Quite sneaky. We might try it again. Anyway, away from the point. So we thought we'd chance it and see if, in the course of getting an interview for Passive House Plus magazine, we could get a podcast episode out of it too. If you're a subscriber to Passive House Plus, you've probably already seen a version of this. But I think the whole conversation will be of some interest regardless. Anyway, um, yeah, it's a bonus episode. Uh, enjoy it. Uh, thanks for listening. Oh, and the ask that we're including again at the moment is if you're not already subscribed, please subscribe. If you can rate the podcast, that'd be really helpful because five-star ratings do make a big difference, apparently. And if you think it's worth listening to, please share it with your peers. Also, If you do think there's anyone we should be speaking to or something we should be speaking about, please email us at zeroambitionspodcast at gmail.com. And as ever, join the ACB, join ACAN, subscribe to Passive House Plus, and if you can, advertising Passive House Plus, but I mean only if it's relevant. Uh, Yeah, enjoy. Cheers. Bye.
1: Great. Uh, So um, this is uh, Dan Hyde, who's a co conspirator of mine. Dan co founded. The magazine that the kind of the predecessor to Passive House Plus, we rebranded and, and changed the focus slightly about ten years ago. But Dan set it up with me. God, uh, the magazine was originally called Construct Ireland with a very very small typeface for a sustainable future written underneath it. Uh, we were kind of trying to be. I think it was kind of partly our inner teenagers. We were kind of. Um, I liked the idea of being subversive and and uh, an or you know an, an ordinary house builder or architect picking up this this high production values, normal looking, you know, construction magazine. And all of a sudden they're bombarded with information about sustainability. But I think it was also the time we were, oh. here, you know, yeah.
0: Yeah, we, we didn't want to frighten them because like, you know, construction's a very conservative market. I mean, we had a big wind turbine on the cover of the first issue. Like, you know, we went in pretty obvious. But yeah. Uh, yeah, we didn't want to, we wanted them to listen to us. That was the main thing. Yeah. But times have changed an awful lot, haven't they? I did.
1: I guess what I, I kind of felt at the time. Is I didn't. I'm sorry, I, 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 I didn't have you come on here just so we could rant on it. God's <laughs> sake! no point is in- no. I want to hear all of it. I love it. <laughs> we. I. I think. I. I resent the idea of being an ism. You know, um, of being uh, articulated as, uh, as a as a, a hobby or as a lifestyle choice or whatever. You know, it's, right. it's, You know, it's it's uh, you, you want it to be normal, basically. Uh, because why? I agree. You know. But um, but there you go. Uh, so yeah, you're you're um you're at home in
2: uh, in sunny Los Angeles, is that right? Yes, it's a suburb of LA in the San Fernando Valley. It's called Studio City, for obvious reasons. They have a lot of studios in the valley, and I'm right across the street from one that I've worked at since St. elsewhere, and probably before that. So uh, wow. yeah, it's uh, part of the industry, and the uh, it's a big part of LA and California. You know, filming and entertainment.
1: Uh, oh, just to say as well, um, the intention with this would be to use this as an interview in X Plus magazine, which uh, I've added you to the mailing list, so there will be a copy uh, uh, heading, heading your way imminently. Okay, so um, just starting off, I guess I, I was interested a little bit in your background, and uh, for starts, from an Irish perspective Ed, you have, I mean Begley, you know that's that's a name that uh, uh that that I'm very familiar with. Uh, you you have in fact I, I did a TEDx talk. Uh, um, like that.
2: Oh, somehow a mute just occurred. We're Jeff, you've... I think. The, yeah, mute yeah, we've might lost you, curse. Jeff.
0: Can't hear a word you're saying, Jeff.
2: Okay, how about that now? Ah, uh, that... yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You're right. back. You're back. I think well, the I... other mic might not be plugged in. I mean, anyway, this
1: is strange. Anyway, um. It's Probably the, the fossil fuel industry trying to intercept, yes. exactly.
2: We hear what they're talking about, we got to get on this right away. Yeah, he in
0: started bus. talking nationalism and then the mic cut. Well, <laughs> I was British going... concerned about reunification.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> All I was going to say was that, um, Begley is a, 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 that's an Irish name, is it? it is
2: from County Kerry. My uh grandparents came over in a boat from Ireland, so uh, wow, uh, they're from Killorglin and Killarney. Have I you been... heard of? Oh, I've been to both places.
1: Have you? Have you seen? Have you seen the Puck Fair?
2: I was going to mention Puck Fair. The word is, you know, when you go to Puck Fair, you have to mind yourself with the tinkers and the begleys. That's the word, apparently.
1: <laughs> for our, <laughs> for, our um, for our listeners and readers, just to explain uh, Many of our Irish uh, uh, audience, will, uh, much of our Irish audience, will be familiar with this. But the Puck Fair involves um, building and erecting a platform and putting the head a, of a, a goat, goat on a
2: pike. I think. <laughs> well, it's a well, scene. Uh, from a picture that I saw, there was a head of a goat on a pike oh in God, one of that, the celebrations been, of Puck Fair. That
1: may have been in our less before Ireland had this kind of uh, wokeism, and uh, that I'm very pleased to see. Oh, this is many listening. years ago.
2: This it's, is it's back
1: a, in the. It's a living ghost. They put a crown on it and they stick it on top of a platform. Uh, And it makes, and it's the king of Calgaryland, basically, as I understand it.
0: Do they not? And we might want to edit this out. uh, Do they not marry a a child to the goat in some symbolic ceremony?
2: I've never been to Puck Fair, so I accept whatever. Changes have been made over the many, many years of celebration.
1: <laughs> but I actually um I I gave a TEDx talk uh late last year on Passive House. My, one of my co-talkers um was a guy called Brendan Begley or Bra- Brendan i Ob- oh, I've got to pronounce this. Ob- Ob- Oak. Oh, yeah, he's a Gael Gore, a native Irish speaker. I'm talking about how planning the kind of tendency to he comes from a village in the Gaeltacht near Dingle in the west of Kerry um oh yeah which had uh, nearly 200 uh homes and, and families prior to uh the famine um and i think it's fewer than 20 now um, it's been completely decimated and his point was that the culture uh of that area uh it has has been decimated and it's very rich very local uh because his argument was that planners needed to allow uh local people to live in the area in order to keep an, an, an indigenous culture alive, uh, which when you hear his argument fleshed out, it's very good. It, it could easily turn into a kind of a local houses for local people, a kind of a MAGA type argument, you could almost imagine, you know, um, in the wrong hands. But it, uh, right. it's,
2: But that, so that's interesting. So have you been back? I was there in uh, 1966 with my father. Got right. to see it the first time with my wonderful dad, who'd been there many times. He was born in Hartford, Connecticut, but... His parents came over from Ireland, so uh, I went there again in '87 and enjoyed it yet again. And uh, I'd like to get back again while I'm still alive and uh, see that beautiful it's better country. When you're it's alive. Bit, yeah, yeah, it's much better.
1: But yeah, uh, and it's interesting. I don't know whether you've whether you've seen uh, the the journey that Ireland has been going uh, through uh, uh, um, in recent years. I don't know to what extent the stories got across in America actually. Uh, a bit
2: what the stories we got and I got firsthand from some of my relatives who lived there. you guys made a lot of good choices over the years to get into uh, technology and what have you, specifically computers and we're ahead of the curve, you know, very impressive the way. People started to adapt in Ireland, and well, yeah, the, the I think
0: the bit we've been most impressed by recently is the commitment to the low energy building, which is being signalled from the very top and filtering yeah. down. Particularly with Ireland's building stock, it's not very consistent. There's an awful lot of different building types, and they recognise that we need to do something about it. And so, there's a massive program which is being delivered from the top. Skilling up in terms of expertise, in terms of materials, in terms of changing the face of the the built environment across the island its amazing.
1: Yeah, there's, and- a, tar- there's a target to retrofit. Uh, I don't, I don't know if you'd use the term retrofit uh in the States. Weatherize seems yes. to be more Yes. Yes. Uh, Absolutely. Um, about a quarter of our housing <clears throat> stock by 2030, and um we're very fortunate. With our political system, because we've got a, uh, with our parliamentary democracy, we've got a system called proportional representation of PR, whereby you don't have to hold your nose and vote for the least evil candidate. And consequently, we have the Green Party uh, in government, in coalition in Ireland, for the second time now in the last 15 years. And I've certainly found in this case, you know, having a very jaundiced view of government prior to them getting into power the first time. And they, not that they get everything right, of course they don't. But, you know, you have, principled kind of people who are really nerdy about policy in the best possible way, who are who are governing um and, and who are trying to do good things and who will listen. I've been Amazed by So in the context of of new homes, for instance, since 2007 in Ireland, um, and I chaired when they were last in government from 2007 to 2011, I chaired their policy committee on buildings, the the Green Parties. We got in mandatory renewable energy systems for all new homes in Ireland, 40% rising to then 60% energy reductions for all new homes in the country. And we just kind of transformed uh, how homes are built in Ireland and all of the objections that we'd had up until that point from the industry. You know, and there've been lots of them, the the conservative uh, traditional house builders um, that has historically objected to insulation in buildings and and building regulations before there were building regulations. You know, that's been going on for 40 years. But they stopped. They just stopped complaining and got on with it it because we had a government that was willing to do it. And, uh, and I think it helps that we were, uh, the country was bankrupt at the time we got this stuff through. So they were kind of, the builders were too busy fighting their own insolvency to put up much of a fight. But, but since then, you know, it's it's been phenomenal. And, and, and the quality of homes being built now, it's still lots that's not right, but it's immeasurably better than it was. And I think there's more pride within the industry as well, that it's, we, can, we can do things that are right and that, that are improving people's lives, you know. Um, so it's well for,
2: for so long, Jeff, we uh, we had it wrong here in the States, and I know others got it wrong elsewhere. We would look at a building and what's the cost of that building? People for many, many years would look at labor and materials. That's the cost of the building. And that's highly inaccurate to look at it that way. What is the cost of running that building? That's another big cost over its long life. If you build it right, as I have with my lead platinum home that I'm sitting in right now we built it out of steel with 12-inch thick walls and all of that that goes with it passive solar design so the the cost of this building you know including running it which is something a very important factor of course for sure it's, it's very low it's it's just simply the future it's and not just the future it's today what we must do because uh otherwise you just keep trying to heat and cool these energy inefficient buildings and we'll you know, go broke trying to do
1: it. Well, this is it, and I actually, it brings me to a very inter- a point that's long fascinated me, which is that I see when you look in kind of kind of lifestyle magazines, where you you know, or or television shows where you have a, c- a celebrity showing people around their uh, indecently oversized, extremely kind of extravagant uh home, and and, and uh, knowing the the nerdy stuff that I do about about low energy buildings through, through the magazine, I know that those buildings are going to be not, not just extremely expensive to run, but uncomfortable places now i yes. don't know why people who are supposed to be these people who are supposed to be you know people you'd expect to have the best of everything in society you know the one the, the right. centers and so on don't they value comfort think about a standard like say passive house, for instance and it's not just house, but house is a very good example of, of, of how to achieve this is that you can create a building that without needing to put energy inputs into it be it from a renewable source or a fossil fuel source um you've got a building that's constantly comfortable you know, constant uh, 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 supply of filtered fresh air and uh, and it's tempered. It's that kind of Goldilocks kind of range of neither being too hot or new or too cold. Who wouldn't want to live in a building like that? And why don't we have? Uh, I remember the the late great uh, green radical economist Richard Dawkins, who used to write for us, saying that it's it's when we have magazines like Hello or I don't know if it's People or whatever in the states that you call it featuring uh celebrities in there opening up their eco houses that's when we will know that we're making some headway
0: well i mean to that point specifically you're a man of means ed what inspired you to actually take the time and the effort to create your own home to this significant degree you've put an awful lot of time and effort into it it's particularly into the construction of it not just the not just the running costs how did you get into that
2: It started many, many years before that, when I was a teenager and I had these things that I wanted. What I wanted was solar panels on my house, and I wanted a nice electric car that had some rain to it. Those things were very much unavailable to me. After my dad passed in 1970, I was a broken, struggling actor, so I got to do just what I could afford, you know, recycling, composting, vinegar and water instead of harsh cleansers, you know, baking soda instead of Comet, all that stuff that I could do with that was very cheap. I did all that and still aspired to get this stuff. And finally, then many years later, saving money on all the cheap and easy stuff that I did, you know, picking the low-hanging fruit, if you will, making my apartment at first and then my home when I had one more energy efficient. I finally saved the money 15 years after I got involved in 1970. That was the first birthday, 1970. 15 years later, I could finally afford solar, not solar electric, that was still out of, range for me price-wise and hard to get, good solar electric panels. But I got solar hot water in 85. And I bought a wind turbine in 85 as part of a wind farm as an investment. And I all that stuff worked and saved me money. So I kept going. And pretty soon I went, I'm going to build a proper home at some point that's you know very, very energy efficient. And I finally got to do that 2016, which is fairly recently now. But before that, I always lived in smaller, and very energy efficient houses. And, and that, that's what I thought I was gonna have the rest of my life. But I had some success later in life with this reality show my wife and I had and many other acting jobs. So I went, let's go booyah here, let's go all the way and build not just you know, lead silver or gold, but what they call lead platinum, which is the highest miles per gallon, if you will, for your home, you know the highest efficiency. And, and now I get to reap the benefits because my bills are super low here rest for the rest of my days and my children's days and indeed probably my grandchildren's days
0: bootstrapping into sustainability because of your frugality exactly
2: it all came from my irish grandparents it really (laughs) did (laughs) my grandfather was a hod carrier you know what that is of course you know carrying the bricks and mortar up to the people the masons who were doing the work a strong lad and he came over and did that kind of work in hartford connecticut my dad became an actor and so i always just uh revered that part of my past and that frugality. And I I got it from that. You know, my my dad was a great influence on me. He was, you know, we saved string and tinfoil and turned off the lights and turned off the water. We were never wasteful. So I got all that from my dad. That was all the positive stuff with my dad and that bit and my ancestors. But the negative was also powerful too, because I grew up in smoggy LA and that pollution was horrible. It just seared my lungs every day. So I went, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to one day buy an electric car. I'm not going to be part of this. I'm going to put up solar panels. And I fortunately got to do all of that. It's
1: amazing. It's very interesting that you touched on your family heritage because in some ways a lot of what we talk about in sustainability is sort of about relearning things that uh were common practices prior to I guess what we'd call the oil age. Right. But before you had this uh this wonder fuel uh that that uh for all of all of the bad things we know about it now enabled people to, to, to live what they thought was a, a higher quality of life and to to, to travel further and, and so on. But it, it also probably it meant that, you know, I, I'll give you an example. If we, if we look at buildings in Ireland, a lot of the uh, the practices that we, we advocate now today in, in, in designing a low energy building. So a good compact form. Modest enough glazing ratios, rather than these massive, you know, uh, double height expanses of glass the whole way around. Um, right. And uh, and good airtight, tightness, well sealed in. Those kinds of principles were locked in already uh, with uh, with traditional Irish kind of vernacular architecture, um, and we right. kind of lost it when the ad- with the advent of of uh, of concrete and and uh, and um, kind of cavity wall construction, and then and then uh, gas and oil based central heating. It kind of was forgotten you know and we're now returning to it but i think i think in some ways that's, i think it's very heartening and it, obviously it's, this isn't just the buildings it's way beyond that but it, it's some for me it feels like the message you're trying to to get people to accept it's much easier for them to accept it if it's not entirely new if it's in some way familiar if it's part of our our, our heritage already i agree uh, i i wanted to, with your back to your own house um i i watched uh, a TV show about it, I think a news report where you let a reporter in and you really seem to have done the whole hog. I mean, you know, the efforts you made to think about reusing materials, for instance, throughout the building and and and, and thinking about non-energy stuff, water and composting and, and, and so on and, and landscaping and all of this good stuff it was really, really impressive. But the steel issue was really interesting for me because I, I, I noticed you mentioned that you, you built it out of steel, so not a single tree was cut down and making it now. It's very interesting because on this side of the Atlantic, the the conception that the sustainable building community would have is that we should be building out of timber and that we shouldn't be building out of concrete or steel. I should, uh, what the caveats I should add is that we're talking about trying to have really robust, hopefully meaningfully robust sustainability requirements for forestry. So that you're not cutting down, I don't know, giant redwoods, <laughs> you know, precious native trees, for instance, right. and and uh, and trying to to put plantation forestry in its place. My sense is that the forestry certification in the states I'm not, I'm not as up on it as I should be. Is nowhere near as uh, as robust like the leading forestry certification we have here is uh, the FSC, essentially an NGO, uh, a few hippies who came together and came up with a with a model for for sustainable forestry. But uh, was was that your thinking, was it was it concerns about the timber industry in the States specifically or what?
2: There's so many factors and you have to weigh each and every one of them and then make the best calculation you have. Mm. Certainly, FSC lumber is much better than the regular, you know, clear cut kind of lumber or whatever way you want to look at it. Yeah, there's that. And timber can be sustainable. I understand that. And it has been in the past. But yeah. with the amount of trees that we're losing now with climate change, with these wildfires, mm. the notion of building again a house out of sticks again in a place like Paradise, California, where they just lost <laughs> all the homes, you know, <laughs> how many times are you going to rebuild a house out of wood in, in an area like that that's going to probably burn again? And I know there's a tremendous amount of energy used to make steel. I get that. I know that. Mm. But most steel, I, th- I think the right number is about 63% post-consumer recycle. What used to be a car is now a frying pan. What used to be a frying pan is now a car. You know, that metal is just too valuable to waste. That's where you have those giant magnets picking up cars and other things in a junkyard and recycling that steel. It's, It's less energy to mine it in the junkyard than it is to mine it in a mountain and make that ore into new steel. So all those are factors and we must weigh them all. If our forests are gonna sustain and not keep burning and burning with climate change, and you can really grow them in a sustainable manner. I'm open to it. But what I also liked about it is the amount of time, you know, there's mold damage, there's termite damage, there's fire yeah. damage. So many things can take your wooden house away. A steel house is affected by none of that. Mold, mm. termites, fire. I mean, you can, of course, you can burn a steel house too, but it's much harder to burn. You have to yeah. have a lot of wood inside and on the roof or wherever you put your wood. So there's there's a reason to build out of steel. And it's all a formula. And you have to look at all the way all those facts and figures come together. Yeah. You know, so I I chose to build out of steel and I think it was the right choice. Certainly now with the incredible risk so many people are having with fires in a, a town like Santa Rosa. That's a town, Santa Rosa, California. The neighborhood looks identical to my neighborhood. It's not up in any hills. It's in the mm-hmm. flats the way my home is. I'm talking to you from right now. The neighborhood looks identical. All those homes were gone. Just you know, mowed down by this wildfire they are going to have more and more of unfortunate. Yeah. So we have to weigh all that, pick the right materials. But for years, I promoted things like there was a material called rostra and other straw bale kind of stuff. And all that, that sustainable stuff has a value too. Rather than going, I'm going to make this structure, I'm going to make it permanent, have Mm. something that's more part of nature and, you know, ebbs and flows and is repaired and has changed and is made with organic materials, if you will. Yeah. All that has a value and you. You weigh it all and make your decision on where you live. What yeah. I do like about the lead point system, though, they look at everything. Mm. Are you getting marble from Italy? You know, how far is that stone coming from? Mm. Are you making a lot of trash when you build the, you know, it's a job site building this home. Everything that you do, big and small, is factored into, you know, the point system you get to say your home is green or not green. And I like that, that they look at everything over the life cycle of it. Absolutely, so, and one of the
1: things that Lead have started doing recently, which I think is the direction that uh, uh, generally the industry needs to do, but moving beyond a point system towards full uh, life cycle assessment, so you can actually uh, carbon isn't the only metric we're interested in. Obviously, there's biodiversity and a bunch of other considerations right. too. But if you look at embodied carbon, for instance, we're now entering into a phase now. Uh, in the last. Couple of years, even where it's becoming possible, there's new tools um, and more manufacturers engaging in terms of product supply, the audit, getting their products independently audited. That we can actually look at all of the flows that go into a building, the material flows, look at uh, where the products came from, uh, the manufacturing processes, the suppliers that, that they use to make the product, um, the transport emissions, and so on, and then make us start making judgment calls around the lifespan of the building to produce an overall kilograms or most likely tons of CO2 equivalent per square meter for the building. So that I think is really exciting, you know. Um, and, yeah. and, on, and on your point about steel, the, the hope that I have for steel, um, I completely take your point about life about, uh, uh, lifespan of it recycling as well. Although I think I think cert- certainly in most climate zones, it's possible to have timber buildings that can last for, you know, hundreds of years, if not more. It depends on, on uh, you know, obviously the fire risk in a region like that is, for most construction forms. Um, there's There have been some advances you may have seen announced in the last few months about uh, steel smelting, carbon neutral steel smelting in terms of virgin steel, which which struck me as, I think, I think it was virgin steel, I could be wrong, uh, which struck me as extraordinary, given the temperatures they're required to achieve. So, so there is innovation starting to happen, which, which to uh, hear. I, linked to this, uh, there's a concept which I'm really drawn to, um, and it comes from a fellow called Andy Simmons, who's the chief executive of the, of the Association for Environment Conscious Building in the, in the UK. It's called Radical Sufficiency. Um, and I, I think Andy coined it at least. He's certainly the, the only person I've really heard advocating for it. And it's this principle in the context of building. The first question you ask is, do I need to build at all? Is what I'm proposing to build too too big? Is, this a, is it in a location that's going to make me too car dependent? And... And then once once you've answered all those questions, you're thinking, well, how can I build it in a way that uses this the smallest amount of, of least problematic, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, or, of the most sustainable resources that we can for the maximum performance? Um, and it struck me in some ways, I don't it's a very useful concept for us to kind of try and remember to apply this uh, when we're looking at buildings as well. And rather than having come, somebody coming along with their, I don't know, like a LEED Platinum uh, for, or Passive House certified, Bond villain layer, you know, 10,000 square meters or whatever. Uh, what I call dinner party sustainability, complete con- contradiction in terms, you know. This kind of approach, radical sufficiency, is that, uh, would you call it, consider that to be sort of going against the kind of what people think of as the American way, you know, using less? And how do you, how have you managed to make these arguments for so long without losing faith? Without, you know, uh, um, I can imagine that a lot of the arguments you're making have, have not been well received by many people.
2: Yeah, I... I was much better at making the argument years ago when I was single. And now I don't, I'm not sure I win the argument in my own home all the time. This home is a perfect example. It's, it's a fine home. It is a lead platinum home. It has very low energy use, nine kilowatts of solar, a 10,000 gallon rainwater tank, water system, heavy efficiencies in every matter you could, you could think of, but you know, it's bigger than I wanted. My wife wanted some, Bigger spaces, closet space, or what have you. And if you're going to be married in, you know, 2022, you got to make concessions and can't just do it my way the way I used to. So people want a certain amount of comfort, and I've become more sensitive to that. Uh, This home is larger by square footage than the home I lived in for most of my life. That home I lived in for 26 years. It was part of that show, Living with Ed, that she and I did. It's it's larger, but the bills are lower. The electric bill is lower. The water bill is lower. natural gas, such as it is, we use pretty little of that. All of it's lower and better. So, you know, you got to balance and keep everybody happy. And uh, I've always been comfortable in a very small place because that's what I grew up in. My dad raised me in a 1,700 square foot house, which is huge by world standards, 1,700 feet for just three people. Oh my God, what are we going to do with all that space? You know, but for most people in America, that's a very small house, you know, a two bedroom house that size. But I was very comfortable with that the first 67 years of my life and thought that's the way I was going to be carried out in a gurney. But my wife had other plans for me. And and now this is good in many ways, not the least of which is we've got a lot of our high profile friends to look at our place and go, wow, I can live in a house that small. as Ed's. But To them, my house is very small at 4,000 square feet. <laughs> to them, that's like a shack. You yeah, know, it's I mean, all like- in the eye of the beholder. And the one thing we do good to mitigate that size, we're always having environmental board meetings here and different seminars and things and we're using it not just of the home but a space to gather and meet and plan you know for environmental groups that I'm part of so the space is used wisely in, in other ways besides us living here.
1: Well look it's all relative as well isn't it you know. Um, yeah. You're speaking to somebody who lives in uh, I, I am in a I'm renting an, uh, an apartment in uh, in Dunleary in the southeast coast of, of Dublin. My flat is 89 Square meters, uh, which is, wow. is it, square square feet, is about ten times that. Um, myself, my wife, and our two young kids. Um, and it's uh, if I can be so cross. Uh, I don't know whether to edit this out or not, but it's uh, it was it's, the description I use for it is is it's what you call an, an all balls uh, flat. Um, it's um it's got basically three three toilets and a and a large hallway, and the living space is actually really quite quite small. It's like it's the analogy is um a woman uh, t- taking a, a man home, and uh, he seems to have a big package, um, but but she you know, pull down his his speedos, and actually it's it's all balls. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's very funny. I never heard that. That's very yeah. Funny. yeah.
1: Well, this is it. So, um, well, I mean, you're lucky not to have heard it, actually, Ed. Yeah. So, um, it's, uh, but, the, but, the, but the point is that um, it just it means that uh, you know, in spite of that, uh, we're very lucky, and and it's a weird situation actually, because the developer who built this, it's part of a development of 2,000 homes, mixing townhouses and apartments. Um, one of the biggest developers in the country, but he's kind of an old-fashioned builder whose his name means something to him. He wants people to be who, who, are, who are living in these homes to um, to when they go to sell sell on the homes to be his name is Mick Cosgrave advertising them as a Cosgrave home. So he's got that kind of pride in his name, and that's meant that he's got a lot of the stuff right from a quality perspective. So we've got, you know, it's a, it's a golf course turned into housing, which for starts I approve of anyway. You know, it, it, the density is very it's very very high. Um, we we it's easier where I live, easier for us. It's quicker for us to walk or, or definitely cycle to, to the town we're in than it would be to, to drive because of the permeability, the way that they've designed the pedestrian access and, you know, and kind of biodiversity and everything else. It's, it's all built in there and you create then a place that people want to live. It's not this... A foreign concept of communal living that people are, might might be afraid of it's normal it's desirable um, and uh, we can walk everywhere we want to get to we can we, we, we take our kids to school to, to the shops and so on and it isn't annoying at times um, but with the irish climate and so on but you know i think on balance i i just fear that we're we're on a hiding to nothing if our arguments about sustainability are about austerity are about telling people you can't have this, you can't have that. And there are some cases where that there's no getting away from that, I suppose. But if you can show them that doing this right and planning it the right way can enrich and improve your life, uh, I think that's a message that that uh, uh, that uh uh I don't know. Are you hearing people? I mean, I've heard you making those kinds of arguments, Ed, I have to say. Is there a sense, a kind of more, I hate the word aspirational, but is there a sense of more aspirational kind of uh, environmentalism that you're seeing in the States?
2: Yeah, some people really want to do more and they want it to be meaningful. So they're willing to go that extra distance and, and do it right. Uh, and, and so I'm, I always applaud that and encourage that. But again, I'm a guy, I just refuse and I always have to judge my friends by their homes or their cars. I wouldn't have any friends, you know, I encourage people to do it. I do what I do. And you want to join me, here's what I did and give it a try. You know, I I try to be very inclusive, but I think that's the best way to go. You get more people to join you if you're not you know, always being divisive and trying to make people feel guilty. I think a lot of people want to do something. You just got to give them some choices that uh, resonate with them.
1: Well, this is I saw Brian Cranston as well. I don't know whether you know him. Um,
2: uh, very well. He's a great guy and built a very green home in Oxnard, uh, California, or perhaps in Ventura. A coastal town not far from here
1: yeah and not massive either again actually you know no very modest
2: home beautiful place
1: it's great to see that you know some sincere attempts uh to, to kind of do things and by god we need it i mean um i don't know how you're feeling with the u.s the supreme court's uh rulings on, on you know oh boy everything that they've been doing recently has just been uh shocking
2: just shocking <laughs> yeah i don't know where we're headed here in america but it's we're on the wrong trajectory and hopefully we can get it back to magnetic north here, but we're, we've are we gone mad in so many ways here recently. I'm not sure what's next.
1: Um, Dan, Dan's talked before about, it um, was Dan who who, uh, who told me, I, I didn't know this, about uh, where the idea of personal responsibility came from and that, that it was a, a very clever ploy uh, led by the, the fossil fuel industry. Is that right, Dan?
2: I think oh, was... right, right. They yeah, tried I think to it... shift...
0: It was BP, I think, I could be wrong, or Shell, one of them, who came up with the, the notion of the carbon footprint as a way of framing the whole conversation.
2: To... It's all on you. You guys do it. We don't have to do anything. <laughs> that's and I way. my message has been kind of misused over the years because of that, because I do promote in a big way personal responsibility, and people thought that's all I cared about or did. Yes. Three pillars, and I'll say it now in front of you guys because you know it already. One is personal responsibility, doing all the stuff I've done that I'm known for, electric cars, solar panel, all that. Wonderful. The other two are equally important. They must be of similar strength and size. That is corporate responsibility and good legislation, you know, government. If you don't have all three, we wouldn't have cleaner air in LA, which we do have now from the first birthday in 1970, because people did personal responsibility, stuff like me, there were good laws, the Clean Air Act signed by an environmental radical by the name of Richard Nixon. He signed the damn thing. <laughs> Crazy Richard Nixon signed it. There's that. And then corporate responsibility, getting corporations to you know agree to these things and do things right. You have to have all three. It's not all on us, the way some people were trying to frame it. You guys go, Ed Begley's wonderful. He's driving an electric car. Just do that. Not good enough. You need to the Clean Air Act, and you need corporate responsibility an equal amount, so you won't get anything done.
0: Well, see, this is the thing. What we seem to have endured over the last 20, 30 years or so is just an awful lot of personal responsibility messaging, where the, the, the absolute need is for one of systemic change. And we're at an inflection point where there's the potential for things to change, just as you said, like one way or another, Things are going to head in a certain direction and the climate. When Jeff and I started the magazine, the sustainability magazine 20 years ago, what we recognized at that point was there's one direction of travel in this debate. There are a couple of outcomes, but the planet's getting hotter. (laughs) And unless we change something, it's just going to get worse and worse. So we set that out as a, a vehicle for communicating all these messages and for advertising as well. So, for the sake of the podcast audience, if you want to advertise, you can advertise in Passive Hours Plus magazine. Still, we don't plug our own work enough. Um, but we we recognise there needs to be a a massive amount of uh, activism out there to to instil change. Like to I don't know to I mean, the corporate and legislative change that you're talking about. Ed. Well, so. it's to build exactly. support, a grassroots, but affect corporate behaviour. That's the big one. And governmental behavior. You've been an advocate and an activist for a long time, haven't you? You've been doing it a long time.
2: I have. We have from 1970 to date, from the first Earth Day to date, we have four times the cars in LA, millions more people, but a fraction of the smog. And not just because of me riding my bike and taking an electric car around, because of the Clean Air Act that we went, we sued the air district in LA using that Clean Air Act. We got companies on board to make cleaner power plants and cleaner cars with catalytic converters. We did all that together. Corporate, legislative, and personal action is why we have to... Now, I say the air is cleaner, and it's mostly cleaner in L.A., but not for the people who live near the fulfillment centers and the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles. There's still lots of pollution in those neighborhoods. You know, they are not. They haven't gotten the relief that we have in Studio City, let's say, where I live, but we, we can. We've proven that we can do it, but they... You have to focus on all three. It can't be just one or nothing would ever change.
0: It's an inspiring precedent, yeah. Uh, I was curious as to whether your profile has made a a difference in your your work. Like, obviously, you've got a platform that lots of other people don't. Have you been able to wield that platform?
2: Absolutely. And I've been, uh, you know, tried to be careful with that. You have a certain access, you have a certain, and responsibility goes with us when you're given the megaphone, the microphone to talk about you know, weighty matters. So you don't want to cry fire in a crowded theater. But also, if you're supposed to go out and do a song and dance and the fire marshal taps you on the shoulder and says, there is a fire smoldering in the basement, make sure we evacuate row by row. Am I supposed to just go and do a song and dance after hearing that? Absolutely (laughs) not. And that's people that just shut up. You're an actor. I don't want to hear about your environmental bullshit. Leave me alone. Just you're an actor. Shut up and do your job. Not good enough. I've heard from the fire marshal. The fire marshal is the union of concerned scientists, more than half the living Nobel laureates, all these great people with PhD after the name that have told us about climate change and plastics in our ecosystem and the ocean and what have you, loss of coral reefs, amphibians dying off, all the stuff that we know about, we know about from the fire marshal, the people that know about such things that are scientists. So. We have to promote that message and do it responsibly. And I've tried to do just that, get the best good scientific data and get it out there. And My friend Bill Nye is pretty good with that, too. You know, he's out there talking about this stuff and making it known to people in a way that's palatable to the average Joe and Jane.
0: Yeah, well, we know it's like I'm just trolling through your Wikipedia page. I mean, you've been mocked by the Simpsons for these efforts. <laughs> like, no, that's, yeah, that's right. accolade. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. But I mean, where have you where have you found the greatest success? Where have you been able to best wield your voice to effect some then, sort of change?
2: What I found very effective over the years was to not, I really didn't preach about it much. I would show up at a press conference and I wouldn't hide. Somebody said, we're going to have a press conference about doing X, Y, and Z for cleaner air in LA. I would go and do that. But for the other things, just going to the Oscars, let's say, of my bicycle, I didn't show up like a press hound, you know, trying to get anything done. I was just trying to park my bike and they would spot me doing it, you know, and go, wait a minute, you rode a bike here? And so it became more effective in that way because I wasn't trying to, you know, promote things. Yeah, Yeah, I wasn't trying to get glory for it or anything like that. Uh, I found that to be very, very effective. And I got a lot more people interested and wanted to do things because I wasn't ever, you know, scolding them or preaching at them and what have you. I would give them information if they wanted it. I would be very happy to share what I had learned over the years, but I, I tried to do it in a way that was palatable to most people and I had great success. The other important thing, this is very, very important. We environmentalists for years, you know, We didn't get it entirely right when we would want to have, we're going to have no uh, perchloroethylene dry cleaners. We're going to have people clean clothes without perchloroethylene, which is bad for the air quality and many other things that is toxic. That's wonderful. But you have to have a pot of money available the minute that that law goes into effect. So the average Joe and Jane, the average, you know, mom and pop dry cleaners can afford one of those machines that doesn't need perchloroethylene. You can't just tell them to go get it. You go get it. Good luck to you. You know, hope you can get a loan at the bank. Bye. You you can't do that. We have to always have, you know, funds available that we've earmarked with good legislation so the people can do the right thing. They've got incentives to do the right thing. And that's key. That's something we got wrong for years. And now we finally got it right.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, thankfully, a lot of the stuff that's that's happening and. that we're looking at in ireland i think evidence-based approaches within sustainability are really really important um attacking or interrogating your 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 preconceived notions the, the one that always gets me um and i i very much subscribe to the i'd be a fan of uh werner herzog and i'm oh, yeah. with him. Um, I just yeah, him. um wonderful um but he um he won uh a competition against James Cameron i believe to uh, to make a, docu- a documentary you may have seen about uh, the the Antarctic Scientific Research Center um right yeah hertzog um hertzog has this view um and it's he showed in in that documentary this this march of the penguins where one penguin had just lost its mind and veered off at a right angle towards the middle of the uh south pole effectively uh, to its certain death <laughs> Right. He- Herzog has this view of nature, I think, that is kind of inherently chaotic and at times cruel. Um, and and of <clears> course, uh, I I don't necessarily subscribe to that as much as it amuses me. But the point is that um, it's like the simplification of something, uh, of the of this discourse and to say the idea of natural versus synthetic. I mean, water is a chemical, for God's sake. It's a naturally occurring chemical. Asbestos is, is naturally occurring. You know, right. but you don't want that, you know, sprinkled in your cornflakes, right? You know, right. There's a great book uh, by uh, an English doctor and, uh, and journalist called Ben Goldacre. I think you'll find it's a bit more complicated enough. <laughs> uh which is it's a, it's a, it's a hard way to, to win over people's hearts and minds, I think. But it's kind of I feel like we need to kind of not patronize people and, and, and try and engage them. Get them into the nuance of this stuff as well, without getting overly complicated, as you can tell, I have a tendency to do at times.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean the asbestos issue isn't really a big issue. In its <laughs> natural state, it's under the ground. It's it's not <coughs> in your roof tiles and <coughs> your flooring. Right. Like it's it's not so much of a problem. Like the lead doesn't naturally transport water.
1: Yeah, um, and I should say I, w- I would normally uh, we would they're good shorthand terms. These you know like we, we do describe using natural materials generally are are, are better. Know, less processed materials where, where you can use them, of course. Uh uh it makes a awful lot of sense. I just wanted to say as well, Ed, when one of the points that uh, I thought might be, I don't know whether it's something you've considered, um, but when you're talking about cost, um and one of the obsessions that we have in our business is getting away from the conventional payback cost argument. Um it's important to 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 to, to look at that, but to talk about the broader benefits too. Um such as, you know, clean air, for instance, and what's the payback on that, for God's sake, you know, or comfort. Um, it was when, when we've lobbied in the past, sometimes successfully for uh, changing policy from from a, a, a building standards perspective, one of the arguments we've made, which uh, I, I thought was really important in terms of our success, was around cost. The, the argument was that if you make it mandatory, suppose you make a requirement to build a lead platinum or or pacifism, whatever it is, a requirement, a planning condition, for instance, in a given area, In that situation, provided the land prices are high enough to begin with, there's no cost increase at all. Forget about payback, any of that kind of stuff. And the reason being, any developer who's looking to acquire that land to build on the property will factor in what they think the properties are going to sell for, what profit margin they need, and what the construction costs are. If the construction costs increase because uh, you've got higher sustainability requirements, and it's not necessarily true that they will, but if it does, then the land is devalued accordingly. Only works if it's mandatory. But that was critical for us in getting some of this policy through because we were able to say, all of your arguments that you're putting forward about uh, this going to add 20 grand or, or more to the cost of a house, we're, we're bullshit basically you know we were, we were able to show that you know um, so um it feels like that's a nugget of information that doesn't get out there very often about us being more thank you thank you so much i don't know if there's uh, any other particular ground that you you'd like to cover i mean i'd love to, to to learn more about um your the work that you've you, you've you've done in the states i, I uh, and i have to say ed um one of the important things for me uh, with your messaging is that the normal accusations of of hypocrisy that can get thrown at people, uh, when when they make these kinds of messages don't don't apply I think in your case because you are actually doing it. And I think that's what's kind of so inspiring for me is that you know we have somebody who could choose to be profligate. Um but but you're but you're doing it. Um and uh, and quietly in, in, at, at times um uh getting on with it and uh and uh and I I applaud you for that.
2: Well, well you're the- very kind and you're doing a lot you guys too. So I'm very impressed with, be with you today and talk with you and learn from you and it's this is wonderful for me. Well before we wrap up I'd I'd be really
0: interested to see what's what's got your goat at the moment.
2: Well the crazy thing that just happened here inspired by the Trump regime and what have you uh, and the enacted by the Supreme Court they just said the EPA can't really regulate CO2 the way we have we they have to get all their anything that needs to be done needs to be fully ratified by congress which is ridiculous the securities and exchange commission doesn't need to go to congress every time they want to regulate something financially they're a division of the government that has a job to do to keep things fair you know and, and they they do that uh, but they they want the epa now to be basically defanged and toothless and not be able to regulate things as regards climate change we'll see how that winds up with what we have plan but it's a mad turn it's a mad turn of events that's occurred here and uh we'll continue to battle it here in the states but uh people have got things upside down here in the states and we need to sort it out
0: oh it feels like a very familiar tale uh certainly in the uk it's uh deregulation deresponsibility. Yep, like it's it's rife everywhere
1: it's funny. We have a. I have to resist the instinct, my natural tendency towards Scheldenfreude uh when I when I look at what's happening in in, in the UK, for instance, as our nearest uh, neighbor. Because same thing with the states as well. You know, uh, these kinds of decisions by the Supreme Court, um, or, or 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 retrograde policies from the government of the day, the reality is, of course, that they affect the whole world. Right. Uh, and and not So so they're tragedies on a kind of global scale. I wonder. This is an, an argument I never expected myself to be making, uh, even a few months ago. I'm just thinking in terms of of rays of light, you know, of, of hope, um, which we so badly need. In Ireland, in the last six months or so, I've had uh, discussions, or I've heard in the grapevine, um, from I think four of the biggest property developers in Ireland, including a a big U.S. developer called Hines, um, H-I-N-E-S. I think they are. We're building. Big scheme by an Irish standard in in in, in Dublin. Um, there seem to be, and I've looked at it pretty closely, sincere and credible, detailed sustainability requirements for their schemes. And I've been completely exumped by it by why why this is happening, and and the fact that it's happening, the mere fact of it, um, and uh, what seems to be driving it. We're just trying to get the lay of the land of this new European Union rules around what constitutes a green investment and what doesn't. Um and developers seem to be going beyond this because of I think of pressure. I think in part from the Bill McKibbons of the world, this world, uh, the kind of the activists who are pushing, you know, the keep it in the ground campaign, all that kind of stuff. And it seems to be that that the bad guys may uh I, I might be too 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 much of a leap of faith to say, uh, too much of an exaggeration to say that they're going to be our saviors, but they seem to be turning things around very quickly. So it's like a light switch has gone off. Have you seen that in the States? Ed, is there any sign of that? Or, or is it just all uh the conventional, usual vested interest doing the usual vested interest
2: things? It's been mostly people trying to just squeeze everything they can out of this fossil fuel sponge before the party's over to drill as much as they can and to you know get people sympathetic to it, like the Trump administration to do everything that they can and even try to convince people like Biden that it's, you got to, you can't leave the workers out, which of course you can't leave the workers out. I understand that part yeah. of it, you know, in West Virginia with coal, what have you, and and with oil drilling off the coast, they're trying to get every last barrel of it before they know, people know the party's over, people they act, it's called selective stupidity. Climate change I don't believe in it. Uh, I don't think these fires have anything to do with climate change. Bullshit. Everybody knows that it's so. They know that it's happening. We've been talking about it since James Hansen testified before Congress in 1987 from NASA. James Hansen from NASA said the three scenarios, mild, medium, bad, you know, and we'll see which one it is. And it's now turned out to be bad because we did nothing all these years. And people know that there's a few idiots out there that don't know it, but most people know it and they're pretending that they don't know it. And they're trying to just build their last, you know, home or condo beforehand or accumulate their last million before the party's over, but people get it. So I don't think we're quite as enlightened in some ways here as what I'm hearing is going on there in Ireland, but we'll see. In some ways there are people here doing good things. There's people, big companies like Volvo going, screw it. We're just going to make electrics. You guys do whatever you want over there fighting this stuff, but we're just going to make electric cars starting here. And we've already got this many of them today. Now people get it. And I think they're pretending that they don't, you know, the thing is na- nature bats last, you know, you can be mad about it. You can be happy about it. You can feel, you know, you, you make a lot of money off it, but nature bats last. And we're seeing it right now. And wait till all those millions and millions of people need to move from Bangladesh and other low-lying areas. Mm -hmm. And Florida, you don't need to go to Asia from South Florida when all those people need want to move to Alabama and to Georgia. And let's see how they're received there crossing that bridge and that border the way they were after Hurricane Katrina. People with shotguns, don't you come into my part of the world. It's going to be real dicey. Shit's going to get real and soon, and people know that. I'm afraid.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, on on that very positive note, Ed, <laughs>
2: <laughs> but we're doing a lot. There's many successes <laughs> too. Celebrate those and build on de- them.
1: We can't be delusional, you know. Uh, we, no. You know, we, we we must be aware of the the extraordinary. Uh, one prominent English uh, architectural academic, Professor Fionn Stevenson, put it recently that um she thinks the word, term climate change is not obviously that's long abandoned climate emergency some of the newspapers even in the uk the guardian for instance start uses climate emergency rather than climate change um but she says that's not really fit for purpose in her view anymore climate collapse is the term that she 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 thinks we should rise you know um and i think i think the language on this is is really important but you could you know it's it's that difficult balance of how you convey the urgency and severity of the situation without Uh, completely obliterating all hope for people, you know, and there is. Exactly.
2: That's the balance because there are the feedback loops now are kicking in with the methane and the tundra and the permafrost and what have you, all that that's happening is quite, quite alarming. Feedback loops are bad things and they seem to be happening right and left. So we'll do what we can. We've saved a lot. We'll continue to save what we can, which I hope will be a lot, but we got to get going now. N-O-W now.
1: Absolutely. Well, there you go. Now, there is a positive uh, and urgent message to, to end on. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for being so so generous with your time. And uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, I'll be seeing you probably soon on Better Call Saul.
2: <laughs> I look forward, Jeff. Thank you, Dan. Thank you both <laughs> cool. for getting this word out about these very important matters. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Take good luck. Take Bye. Care. Bye. Bye. See you again, guys. See you. Bye.